0: By taking heed thereto according to thy word, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. To give you the opportunity to use First John one nine if necessary, then I'm going to open in prayer let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together this evening to study your word, to be strengthened by your word as God the Holy Spirit takes these things and opens our minds so that we can understand them and, uh, buries them in our memory so that they can be recalled for future application. Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we can put our attention and focus on the lesson, that we can put aside the cares, the worries, the concerns of today, and tomorrow and the next day, and put our attention on the unchanging Word of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to... where shall we start? Open your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Now let's put this in context just a little bit. Tonight I'm going to do something that I've never done before. And you're going to do something... See me do something you've never seen me do before. No, I'm not going to stand on my head. I'm going to exegete from the pulpit. See, now I thought that would get somebody. Because you've never seen that before. But you'll know it when you see it. Because you've never seen it before. You've seen the results of exegesis. And you've been told it was exegesis. But all you saw was the results. Tonight I'm going to break, down, break some things down and do some things on the internet, and utilize the internet, so don't turn it off back there, and show you a couple of things that will be uh, interesting, and I have a reason for doing all of that that I won't go into tonight, but, but there are some reasons for it. We've been studying Joseph, and we've been studying the the literary structure of this narrative of Joseph from Genesis chapter 37 all the way through. Uh, the end of Genesis in Genesis chapter 15, specifically in the section between Genesis uh, 37 and 57. And last time I put this chart up on the overhead so you could look at it, and you can see the literary structure of of this section. It's it's a chiasm. Chiasm is based on the Greek word or letter chi or chi. It's like our letter X. And as you see the outline of the uh, letters in the outline to the, on the left side, you see that they form the left side of a letter X. And there's a parallelism so that A is mirrored by A prime at the bottom, B is mirrored by B prime, C is mirrored by C prime, and then at the center of the organization, you have two sections that mirror one another, and that's at the center. Everything uh, else drives you to the center of the story. I mean, this is great storytelling. We don't we don't really live that much in a culture that is a great storytelling culture anymore. But there's was a great storytelling culture, and so as the writer weaves together this story, he is building a climax. He's building an emphasis. He is he's using all kinds of uh, word plays and structures in order to create tension, in order to get the reader involved. So he's guessing about what's going to happen and who's going to succeed and who's going to fail and how they're going to fail until it all comes together at the end of the story. And, of course, part of the climax in the story of Joseph is when finally the brothers realize who he is and their second thought is, "Uh uh-oh, what's he going to do to us now? And Joseph makes the statement that what God, or what you intended for evil, God meant for good. So at the very core of this whole Joseph narrative is a tremendous lesson on forgiveness, on being gracious, on learning to step over offenses that no matter how egregious they may be, no matter what betrayals we may encounter, to step over them because we understand that God ultimately is in control. And even though people may mean us great harm and they may cause us great pain, and certainly Joseph's brothers did, they intended, him, they intended to kill him, and they caused him great pain and harm, and he went through about 13 years of slavery and imprisonment. But when it's all over with at the proper time, now I'm convinced that if those brothers had showed up while Joseph was still in prison, or if they had shown up maybe a couple of years after he was out of prison, the timing wouldn't have been right. And sometimes that's the way it is for us. When we're somebody has truly hurt us, it takes time to go through that process. We may start forgiving them, but I think we go through different stages of forgiveness before there can be that final full reconciliation like we have with Joseph. When we get to the end of this story, Joseph is going to throw his arms around his brothers, and weep with joy so loudly that everybody in the palace can hear him. That's how loud he is weeping with joy over this reconciliation. But he had to take these guys through various tests before he was ready to do that to see if they had indeed grown out of their mental attitude, sins, their anger, their resentment, their jealousy over who was going to receive the inheritance and the blessing. So the center of this story where everything comes together is in these three chapters that we've been studying in chapters 39 through 42. Now one of the other things that happens as we go through this, I'm going to see if I can pull up the uh, wrong move, uh, go to another slide. And pull up another slide which shows this comparison that's taking place between Judah and Tamar and what happens with the brothers. Now, this is, we're going to work our way through this a couple of times, but I just want to introduce this now. And then when I get back from Kiev, we'll go through it in a little more detail. What happens as we first come upon Judah? Judah is just as much of an of, uh, of evildoer and pagan as the rest of Jacob's sons. There's nothing about him that is spiritually oriented or redeeming. And this comes to a head in chapter 38 when, due to a number of events, the fact that he had married off his eldest son to Tamar, then he died. Judah doesn't know why he died. But the text tells us he died because he was so evil. God took him out of the sin under death. And then uh, the second son um, comes along, Onan. And Onan refuses to fulfill his uh, responsibilities as a levered husband and to raise up children, to even have children, to even impregnate Tamar. And so then he dies because God takes him out because he's so evil. And then Tamar is promised by Judah that the, his youngest son... Well, he's blaming Tamar for the fact that all of his sons are dying. And then after a number of years go by, and Tamar's not getting to marry the youngest son, she goes through this episode where she disguises herself as a prostitute, and she deceives Judah into thinking she's a prostitute, and he makes a deal with her, and they go and have relations, and she gets pregnant, and then she has... Uh, he didn't have any money to pay her, so he gave her his signet ring and his cord and his staff, which would be, in our culture, giving somebody a credit card and a driver's license to hold something. And so she brings that back and identifies him. And at that point, he recognizes that she is more righteous than his It's like somebody slaps him in the face with his carnality, and he deals with it. And that comes under the category of repentance. And that's what we dealt with last time. We were looking at this comparison and what the dynamics spiritually in Judah because when we come to chapter uh, 42 and 43, Judah has become the spokesperson for uh, the brothers. Not only does he step to the plate with his father when it's time to go back to the land, but he says we need to take Benjamin back, the man In Egypt, this is where that you've heard that phrase today. the the um, uh, the the lingo of the day you're referring to police is the man. Well, I think that came from judges. I mean uh, Genesis, because they refer to Joseph as the man. He's the man in Egypt. And again, and he said, "Well, the man in Egypt said." So the man in Egypt said, "You can't come back unless you bring your youngest brother with you, because the first time they went, remember, Judah wouldn't let them take." The youngest with him. He didn't trust those those boys anymore. After they, some, he knew something had happened to Joseph. He he didn't know exactly what, but he knew his sons and he suspected wrongdoing and that they were somehow culpable in the death or, of of Joseph. And so he wasn't going to trust his precious baby, boy, you know, the youngest one. He's probably seventeen years old now, but he is the precious. Uh, youngest baby of his beloved Rachel. He's not going to trust uh, him to these boys. And now they're out of food again. And Judah steps up and says, we have to go back. I will be the pledge. And there's a play on words there because remember he had given a pledge to Tamar. And Tamar comes back and says, I'm going to use the pledge to prove you're the daddy. So there's this play on words here that the writer telling the story uses those words in order to make us see these connections, that there is an interplay here. And so now he's willing to be the pledge. and He's not self-centered anymore. He's willing to be the pledge, take his life on the safety and security of Benjamin and take him back for food. So I started looking last time at how God worked in Judah to bring him to this point of real change. And the biblical word that is used for change is one of those words that's been so abused and misused down through the centuries of Christianity that nobody really knows what it means anymore. It's one of those words like holy People talk about holy all the time. Nobody knows what holy means, but we've used it and abused it so much. It's so familiar that we we lose its meaning and significance. We do the same thing with the word salvation. We do the same thing sometimes with grace. But this word that we're looking at tonight is repentance. And that's what repentance means is change sometimes we think you know people really can't change but people do change look at judah judah is a classic example in the scripture of a man who changed spiritually because of the grace of god and he goes through this process where we've seen that god makes his sin uh, apparent to him and he responds positively and we don't we don't see the details of how he gets right with God and is restored to fellowship, confesses his sin, and all those things. We learn that from other passages of Scripture and understand that that's what happened. But what we see is the result of it, that he goes from being this man who's left his family, shown no spiritual interest whatsoever, marries a Canaanite woman, raises his children, and they don't live or act or think any differently from all the horrible pagan Canaanites around them. And he engages in incest with his uh, daughter-in-law, even though he doesn't know that that's his daughter-in-law in disguise. All of this tra- transpires, and suddenly he's slapped with the reality of what he's done, and there's real change. And by the time we get to the end of the story, what happens is Judah, who's the fourth son, Judah is the fourth son, and the first three have all discredited themselves in terms of of, of gaining the blessing. And there are two things that happen in the inheritance process. One is the, has to do with the firstborn inheritance, and that's the double portion. That goes to Joseph, and there's no tribe of of Israel for Joseph. You have the tribe of Levi, and the tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Issachar, and Reuben, and Benjamin, and all these other tribes, but there's no tribe of Joseph. Why? Because he got the double portion. It went to his two sons, and went to his sons Ephraim and Manasseh, and that was the double portion. But who gets the blessing? Remember back when we studied uh, Esau and Jacob, and there was the story with the the uh, uh, uh esau sold his what his inheritance for the mess of pottage. and then two chapters later uh then uh, jacob comes along and deceives the father by dressing up like uh like esau to get the blessing so there's two those two components well joseph is the one who gets the double portion of the inheritance but it's going to be judah that qualifies for the blessing He's the one who gets the blessing because when Jacob gives the prophecy related to those 12 tribes, he says Judah, the scepter, will never depart from Judah. It's going to be the descendant of Judah that is the Messiah. So it's a wonderful story here. It's not just a focus on Joseph, which is what we think all the time, but it's also a focus on how Judah recovers spiritually and is given the blessing uh, for the uh, coming of the Messiah. Okay, so what happens in all this? How do we go through spiritual recovery? And last time, I took us to Psalm 32. And I just want to go back and pick up a couple of points that I talked about as we looked at that. We started off talking about guilt three weeks ago, or two weeks ago, we started about talking about guilt and shame. First point, guilt has to be acknowledged and responsibility has to be admitted in order for fellowship to be restored. Guilt has to be acknowledged. Responsibility has to be admitted in order for fellowship to be restored. And the second point was that forgiveness must also follow admitted responsibility and confession of sin. Those are the two sides of the coin. First of all, you have to acknowledge responsibility and confess guilt in order to be forgiven. And the other side is that if somebody confesses guilt and admits wrongdoing, you have to forgive them. Those are the two sides of the of the, of the coin that we're talking about in terms of human relationships here. Not, I'm not talking about fellowship, uh, fellowship with God at this particular point. I went on to talk about the fact that there's a difference that we have to understand in our culture between guilt and uh, guilt feelings. Guilt means you have broken a law. The law is God's character. Guilt is what happens when you sin and you break God's absolute standard of His righteousness. Guilt feelings may or may not accompany that, and may or may not be legitimate. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that sometimes when you do something wrong and you shock yourself and you just make a fool of yourself and you just feel terrible about it, that's legitimate. Now, that's not what gets you forgiveness from God, but that's legitimate What becomes illegitimate is when you think that your emotion and how you feel about the sin is what impresses God, because God knows you're going to make a fool out of yourself 150 more times before the end of this year. So he's not real impressed with us coming to God and pleading with him, saying, I'll never do it again, because in omniscience he knows better. So we have to recognize that the feelings of remorse and sorrow are not necessarily wrong. It's just wrong to put any spiritual value on them. So sometimes we're going to feel remorseful about certain sins, and sometimes we're just not going to feel remorseful about certain sins. I don't want to show hands, but I how many people here would feel sorry and really feel bad about going 20 miles over the speed limit if they didn't get a ticket? Don't I don't want your hands up no you 're not I mean there's just some things we 're not going to feel a whole lot and we can 't just go out and manufacture it, which is what you get in a lot of fundy churches is people want to uh, pastors want to get you all worked up about your sins and uh, feeling bad about them because they don 't understand grace but on the other hand don 't minimize those true guilt feelings now, when we are guilty and we have breached god 's character God's standards then we have to be restored there has to be forgiveness and confession and after we confess sins if we're guilty then and we feel guilty then then we've got a problem because if we operate on those guilt feelings then in essence what we're saying is God you really didn't forgive me and before it's over with tonight we're going to go into first John 1 9 a little bit I know that everybody here's heard this but you may discover a few new things tonight. Um, but we have to go into it for a number of reasons. What exactly does it mean to confess? And uh, most of you know what it means, but we're going to cross a couple of T's and dot a few I's. So if you have confessed your sins to God and you've been forgiven, and then afterwards you think, oh, how could God forgive me? I'm just such a loser. Well, now you've really compounded the problem because you've you've said God's a liar. He didn't forgive me. And you've committed the sin again, and you've compounded it with emotional guilt. So you're just really digging a hole for yourself. And, and a lot of people are just so prone to guilt and their sin nature. They just lo- they, they have this little ascetic t- uh, tendency, and they just love to get involved in a lot of self-flagellation and emotional guilt because it makes them feel better about the fact that they screwed up so badly. But it doesn't impress God or anybody else. So we have to understand the process. Now, Psalm 32, 5. Let me see if I can go back to a slide here. Psalm 32.5 is a key verse for understanding confession. The key to understanding confession, because some people just can't get it right. Some people today come along, and you hear this all the time, and they want to import some really unusual ideas into the meaning confession. And we're going to go through a lot of detail on this, but we're going to start in the Old Testament. In Psalm 32.5, I ran through this last time, so I just want to get you back to where we were last time, so I'm going to move quickly. David is reflecting back. This is after his confession of sin in Psalm 51, when he confessed his sin with Bathsheba and the conspiracy to kill and have Uriah murdered. Now he reflects back on what had transpired in terms of God's forgiveness. In Psalm 32.5, he says, "...I acknowledge my sin to you." And we noted that, that sin is always a violation of God's character because sin, by definition, is a, is a violation and a breach of God's absolute righteousness. So we acknowledge our sin to God, and we may affect other people and need to apologize to them, and that's fine. But that, you know, that doesn't do anything for us. It doesn't matter how many people forgive us if we haven't confessed our sins to God. That's what uh, gets us back in fellowship. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, quote, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Forgiveness was the result of confession. There's no mention of repentance here. And there is a perfectly good Hebrew word for it. But there's no mention of repentance here or in other passages. What confession means is clear from the Hebrew words. The Hebrew word is based on the uh, verb yadach, the hifil, and it means to make something known or to acknowledge. The Hebrew Aramaic lexicon there at the bottom says it means to let someone know something, to make known or to inform someone. It means to tell somebody what you did. That's just all it means. And when we get to that second word, confession... I will confess, it's the same word. It's not another word, so it's really poor translation practice. Even though it's good English to have a little variation in your vocabulary, if the Holy Spirit didn't vary, uh, uh, didn't change the vocabulary for style purposes, neither should the translators. It should be the same. He said literally, what David said here was, "I I, I made my sin known to you." My iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will make my transgressions known to the Lord. See, it's the same verb in both places. But that's what confession is. And you forgave me. Why did God forgive him? Because he made known the sin. Did God need to find out what he did? God already knew what he did. He's omniscient. But he had to admit it. That's why we see that confession is, at its essence, admitting or acknowledging wrongdoing. Now, let's use that for a good working definition of confession. Confession means to admit or to acknowledge wrongdoing. Now, we have to test that. We've gotten that out of the Old Testament concept here, and I could go to a lot of passages, and we could spend the next three or four months doing that, but I I think you understand the principle. And so we're going to go over into the New Testament and see how repentance fits into this, okay? Now, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 before we get to 1 John. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about how believers are to live. This sets out a code of conduct for the born-again believer. And this code of conduct can't happen when you're out of fellowship otherwise it just works of the flesh it has to happen when you're in fellowship and we've gone over it again and again and again but just so you are reminded in Galatians five 16, we're told walk by means of the spirit and you will not be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh and the Greek uses a double negative plus a subjunctive ver- verb which means it's impossible to do something So that sets up the the situation that you can only be walking by the Spirit or walking according to the flesh, one or the other. These are absolute states that are completely antithetical to one another. There's no overlapping. It's one or the other. Okay, remember that. So if you're walking by the flesh anything that you do no matter how good or moral or wonderful or biblical or religious it might be getting up in the morning memorizing scripture uh, reading your Bible praying witnessing if it's done in the power of the flesh it's just dead works, has no eternal value but God in His grace might use you but that doesn't mean that you're you're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit or that it has eternal value if you're walking by means of the Spirit, then you do. But as soon as you stop walking by means of the Spirit, boom, you're back out of fellowship again. And you have to do something to get back in fellowship, to recover from walking by the flesh to walking by the Spirit. And that's 1 John 1, nine. But after you get back in fellowship, if you don't do something to stay in fellowship then you're just going to sin right away and be right back out. And we've all gone through that. That's typical of every baby believer. You're in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. And you go through the spiritual yo-yos and you just bounce back and forth like a ping-pong ball. Boom, 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 boom. And all day long you're just doing this. In and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. And you don't get anywhere because there's something that is missing. And that is that it's not okay just to confess your sin and that's the end. The object is to stay in fellowship. That's why Jesus told the disciples abide in me and you will bear much fruit abide means to stay it's not just getting back into fellowship that's the goal it's staying there uh, remaining there that's the meaning of the verb minnow abiding and staying there as long as you can and then that's when you get out of fellowship because you will you just confess as quickly as possible and you get back in try to stay there as long as you can that's when the Holy Spirit is operative so Ephesians 4:31 talks about the principle of forgiveness. And in verse 32 we read, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That's the standard. It's not forgive someone because it's good, it's going to make you psychologically health, healthy, it's going to make you feel better because you're not harboring all this horrible stuff inside of you. You forgive others just as that's the standard. God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. But it's interesting, the word there in verse 32 isn't forgive. It's not aphiemi, which is the word we have in 1 John one nine. It's the Greek verb charizomai, and charis is the noun for grace. So what do you think charizomai means? It means to be gracious. To be gracious, to treat someone in graciousness. So let's look at the context just a minute. These are the... Three key verses up on the screen that we're looking at, but we need to pick up the context. In verse 17 of chapter 4, Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Now, there's that fun word, walk, peripateo. It's the same word we have over in Galatians 5.16, to walk by means of the Spirit. Don't walk like the Gentiles walk means don't walk in the flesh. Don't walk in the sin nature because that's all unbelievers can do is they can't walk any other way. Everything an unbeliever does comes out of the sin nature. It either comes out of the area of weakness and produces morality that has no eternal value. It's good, but it doesn't have any eternal value. Or they produce personal sins, one or the other. Pharisees had great morality. They held... In many ways, they held society together with their morality, but it was a, it was a pseudo-morality because there was no uh, spiritual truth there and thus no integrity. So Paul says, "...don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles, which is in the emptiness of their thinking, having their understanding dark, darkened." And then he describes the characteristics of the futility of their mind. Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God because they're spiritually dead they're uh, they they they're ignorant of the truth and they're blind in their heart that is they're thinking the innermost part of the soul who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all in with greediness they're maximizing carnality verse 19 uh, verse 20 but you there's the contrast okay this is how unbelievers live according to the world system but you haven't learned Christ like that. See, that's the same thing Paul says in Romans 12, too. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's talking about change. So here he says, but you haven't learned Christ in this manner. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Remember, it's the truth that if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. That's what Jesus said. If... Um, that you put off concerning your former conduct, put. What does that mean? To put off, that means to quit living like you did as an unbeliever. That means change has to take place. But you know, a lot of people are like, uh, I don't know, people, various parts of the country don't like change. Change? I don't want to change. I'm comfortable. See, the first thing the Holy Spirit's going to do with you, and He starts teaching you doctrine and you start learning is he's going to take you right out of your comfort zone the comfort zone of what of your own carnality and we're all that way we have our own pet sins that make us feel very very comfortable and that's how we handle life or think we do but what the word of god tells us is that's the path to death that's the path to carnality there's not real life there so he paul says "...put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. The old man is really a term, not for the sin nature, but for everything that you were before you were saved. That former person, that person you were before Christ, B.C., before you were a Christian. "...and that you put on the new man... That is, everything God intends you to be as a believer, put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, he says, and then he gets real specific in verse 25, put away lying, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Be angry, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Third point, let him who stole steal no longer. In other words, when you get serious with doctrine, you're going to quit doing those bad habits, those carnal habit patterns that made life work for you before you were saved, and now you're going to have new characteristics. It's not a matter of going up and pulling yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and say, I'm adopting a new uh, moral code. That isn't going to work. That works for some people, but it's hard work. This is, and it can't be produced in the flesh. See, the difficulty about the spiritual life is it's impossible and you can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. So you have to have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God working together in your life and let the Holy Spirit do the transformation. But you have to make the decisions to apply doctrine. So then verse 29, "...let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers." Watch your tongue. Don't get involved in sins of the tongue where you're judging others, ridiculing others, grumbling, complaining, griping. Always have some sort of negative comment about somebody. Be gracious to them. There's a lot of losers out there. There's a lot of people out there that we just can have a lot of fun running down because they've really screwed up. But so have we. So treat people in grace and don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is where we get into our text now. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Any time you commit these sins, it grieves the Holy Spirit, and you're out of fellowship. Paul says in verse thirty-one, "Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice." Now think about Joseph a minute. All that those brothers had done to Joseph, and how he could—he had the choice. He could hold on to his anger and his vindictiveness and his resentment and his desire to get back at them and his uh, uh, malice toward them. He could just just really uh, th- spend a lot of time thinking and dwelling upon getting revenge on those brothers. But he didn't do that because he was grace-oriented. And that's what we have in this passage in Ephesians, is a description of what grace orientation means. And that's verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. And then we have a participle. The command is given there in verse 32, and the command is, uh, is a present middle imperative of ginomai. A present imperative means this is to be a standard, procedure in your life it's to be a characteristic a standard characteristic of your life and it's what and it's genomai which means to become something you're not become kind to one another see we don't start off that way that's not the natural inclination of our filthy evil corrupt sin nature we're selfish we're arrogant but we are to learn to be kind to one another now how do you do that that's the thrust of the participle. The participle tells us how to fulfill the imperative. It is a participle of means. Be kind to one another by forgiving one another. That's the idea there. How do I be kind to this person what they've done to me? Start off by forgiving them. Forgiving one another. Just as God in Christ forgave you. So that becomes the standard. It's a tough standard to live up to. But how does God forgive us? Well, that takes us over to our passage in 1 John one nine. This is a passage that is familiar to every single one of us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that is a verse that has been ingrained in my consciousness since I was two years old. My mother said that that was the first complete sentence I ever said. She made sure that I learned that before I learned about salvation. I don't know, there was a message there somewhere. I guess mothers know their children. But we live in an era today when, on the one hand, too many people think that that's too simple. Just like they think salvation is too simple. That You mean all I have to do to be saved is just trust in Christ? I don't have to improve my life or I don't have to go through certain rituals or get baptized or join a church or change what I do. All I have to do is trust in Jesus and that's all there is. Yes, that's all there is. The gospel is extremely simple. Don't mess it up by making it complicated. It's not inviting Jesus into your heart or into your life or committing yourself to Jesus. It is simply believing that Jesus Christ died for you. That's the core of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for you. And at that instant, you have eternal life. So with confession, we also want to make that complicated. It's not just enough to confess We need to add something to that. Let's add some remorse to it or let's add some repentance to it. And recently I've heard a new twist where you add repentance beforehand. You have to repent of your sin or you won't get saved. And the example that was being given was that if you have mental attitude sins over here and there's this one person over here that has really betrayed you, And they have really hurt you, and you're really angry with them. Now, when you are consciously angry, bitter toward that person, of course you're out of fellowship. And if you try to confess sin A over here while you are committing sin X over here, whatever it is, you're not going to get back in fellowship because you're committing a sin that's keeping you out of fellowship. But that's not the way this was articulated. The way this was articulated is that if I am not willing to repent of sin X and expunge it from my life, then it doesn't matter how many times I confess sin A, B, and C, I can't get back in fellowship until I deal with sin X. And sometimes you get people who are the victims of child sexual abuse where their father or their mother or their neighbor has abused them from the time they were two or three years old, and it's absolutely horrible. And when they become adults, it may take them years of doctrine and years of walking by the Spirit before they can really get past a lot of that garbage in their past. But it's only through the Word of God that they can truly get past it. But you can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. So according to this view I heard recently, if I get out of fellowship and I commit sin A over here, but I still have a lot of times when I'm angry with this other person over here, sin X, then I can never get back into fellowship and have the power of the Holy Spirit to grow or to deal and learn how to forgive someone and be gracious to someone as... Uh, God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven me. And so it's it's creating a subtle system of works, and it's based on faulty exegesis. So we need to learn how to do some real exegesis. So what I have on the screen, and this is one of those lessons that's going to be very helpful if you can see the screen, and I need to know, Doug, is, can you read it? Is that, or are you squinting? I didn't read it. Yeah. <laughs> is it, I just want to make sure it's clear. I can make it larger, but uh, is that fine? Okay. On the left side of the screen, you have First um, John one nine. If we confess our sins, God is uh, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And since most of you don't know Greek, I stuck an interlinear on that side so that you could at least see the Greek words underlying the English words. And then on the right side, I have various other dictionaries and Bibles open, and we see the New American Standard there that reads um, uh, in a manner that we're a little more familiar with. I'll take the numbers out. Okay, this is the verse that we're looking at, if we confess our sins. Now, the question that a pastor would have as he comes to the text, and you're studying any text, is what does the word mean? You have three things you need to do with any particular text. One is to analyze the the grammar. Another thing is to analyze the the broader syntactical structures and relationships within the text, and then you have to deal with the uh, words themselves and what the words mean because words can change mean just because a word means one means one thing in one verse. Uh, doesn't mean it has to mean that same thing in the next word. Words have a range of meaning. Scholars call that a semantic range. And you can think of a circle. And they can have a whole range of meanings within that circle. And sometimes the meaning of that word actually changes within the context. There's about eight different meanings for the word pneuma in the Bible, which is the word for spirit, Holy Spirit, human spirit, air, breath, thinking, mind, all of the and Paul uses it four or five different ways within three verses in First Corinthians chapter two, so you have to understand the context and his argument and get inside of his head in order to understand how these nuances uh, shift. But we start off in in uh, verse nine with if we. Confess our sins. So the first thing we have to do is figure out what that Greek word is. And of course you look underneath the word confess and you see the English transliteration up there that's uh, homo homologeo, which is uh, right here. Homo legeo. That gives you the dictionary word. Well if I first thing I want to do is look the word up in a good Greek English dictionary. Now if you go to seminary and you learn Greek, you go to Bible college, you learn Greek. You learned that the uh, best Greek English dictionary is called, it's, I think it's BDAG now. The initials always get me confused because it's changed three or four times. Back when I was in seminary, it was Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich. Then it was Bauer, Arnt, Gingrich, edited by Danker. And then he revi- Danker revised it again. It became Bauer, Danker, Arnt, Gingrich. And it's always listed in books with like alphabet soup, BAG or BDAG or BAG D. And I can't keep them straight anymore. So, you but what's nice about these computers is all I have to do is double click on the word and it in instantly opens up my my Bauer Danker Arndt Gingrich right to the word homologeo. I don't even have to get up out of my chair and walk across to the uh bookcase and pull it out and try go through the Greek alphabet again. Let me see how does that how do I find that word? So here's the word homologeo. And I want you to see the meanings. See, just like an English dictionary. You look up an English dictionary, and it may list two, three, four, eight, ten different meanings for a word. The first meaning is the most common. The second meaning is the second most common. The third meaning is the third most common. The fourth is the fourth most common. You get the idea. Same thing is true in, in Greek. Now, if I look at this word, if we confess, I don't go to the dictionary, to the Greek dictionary, and say, okay, there's four different meanings for homologeo. Let's pick the one that fits my theology the best. See, I don't do that. I don't say, oh, let's pick the one that fits the best. See, I don't do that. There's a lot of people who do that because they don't know any better. But that's not how you do it. You see, the range of meanings are dis- that, that circle I talked about. That semantic range is defined by these four meanings. So you have to look at it and say which one of these meanings fits the context of my passage the best, and that's going to be determined by two things: grammar and literary context. And if we look at First uh, John one eight, just go back one verse to pick up our context. John says there: If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, this is a contrast. On the one hand, if we say we don't sin, we deceive ourselves. What's that? What's another word for that? Denial. That's the Greek word arneomai, and that is the opposite to homologeo. By the way, we'll see that in a minute. And verse ten says sort of sandwiches, verse 9, if we say we have not sinned. So, verse 8 says if we say we have no sin, verse 10 says if we say we have not sinned, and in between we have if we confess. Now, just just there you ought to have enough information to know that the semantic range of confess here is going to be the opposite of what it's being contrasted to, which is denial, so right away your your first clue just from context is that the primary nuance of confession here ought to be simply admitting something as opposed to denying something. Now we have to and that fits with what we saw back in Psalm 32, doesn't it? But now we have to test that against various things. Now, the first thing that you should do if you're really doing a word study correctly is not to go to the dictionary, which is what I did. You should do Word usage. See, what determines the meaning of a word is not the dictionary. You didn't know that, did you? See, the dictionary just tells you what the current usage is. You have lexicographers... Who sit around and analyze literature all day long, and how different words are used by different writers and different, and in uh, verbally in different speeches. And so, every ten or fifteen years, they revise dictionaries. They add words and they take words out, and they change the meanings because words don't have an absolute, fixed meaning. Just think of the word uh, ch- um, uh, "love" in English and and in uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for, Gene? Uh, if lo- love, uh, um, hmm, uh, charity. charity. That's what I'm looking for. Charity. See, my, my words are gone tonight. Charity. Charity in 16th century England meant what we think of as love today. But today we restrict charity to certain kinds of of, of helpful giving to different causes. So words change as you go. Uh, down through the ages. And sometimes they, they mean just the opposite of what they once meant. So you have to look at how a word is used in that time period. It's helpful sometimes to do history, which is called etymology. Go back to classical Greek. Go back to, go look at how it's used in, in early Koine period or even afterward. But what matters is how that word is used in the biblical period. And John may use a word in a different way than Paul uses a word. And so you also want to look at, break it down in terms of author. That's what exegesis is. See, I give you the results of exegesis when I teach, but that's what you do when you're exegeting. So you take a word here, like um, homo legeo, and you cr- do a search and you search out all the uses and see what I've done this already here in this particular window and we have 26 occurrences of the verb homologeo in the Greek now you can't read that because it's all Greek to you but uh, every one of those blue shaded words is homologeo now if I wanted to find out what that what they look like in the English they give you a really slick tool here and see I just clicked on that, and immediately converted it all from Greek to English. And I have a complete list here of all 26 uses of the verb homologeo in English. And then what you do is you go through and you begin to analyze each verse. This is what a lexicographer does. This is what we were trained to do in seminary. When I was in my second second year of Greek and second year of Hebrew, my professors would take us through this process, and we'd do exercise after exercise, and go home and beat our brains against the wall doing word studies and all this kind of stuff. And they would say, "When you get out of here, you're going to be doing better work than anything that's in print." None of the commentaries are going to be this good. You will be able to then go, and on the basis of what you have learned, you can actually evaluate uh, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich and see if they're right. You can evaluate Kittle and see if those articles are correct. Let me tell you, they're not always right. I can tell you a dozen places where I and others, it's not just me, But I and others disagree with categorizations in in these dictionaries because they're just men like I am. They just got the same education I have. I've got the same education they do. That's why you want an educated pastor. is because he's not going to be a slave to somebody's secondary uh, understanding of the word. And we'll get to that in a minute. Now, I summarize some of this for you in a slide. So we'll go back to the slide, and we'll uh, I'm just going to skip over that. Uh, this is just a side point. I didn't emphasize this when we went through First 1 John 1:9. 1, the real issue isn't confession. It's cleansing. That's the real issue. Too often people get all caught up about confession, but the real issue is, if you're not cleansed of sin, you can't go in the presence of God the psalmist said in psalm sixty-six eighteen, if i regard iniquity in my heart the lord will not hear me there has to be a cleansing now first john 1 9 gives us the mechanic for the church age okay uh as you go through usage one of the things that you want to do is look at how the greek and the septuagint how the word is used and what it translates from the old testament we have uh phrases like Job forty verse fourteen. Then will I also confess unto thee that your own right hand can save thee. Now what does confess mean in verse fourteen? That has the idea of admitting something. Then will I also and, and publicly announcing it in a sense. That's the idea in Job forty fourteen. Then we have some usage in the in the uh Apocrypha. For example, in first Esdras four sixty, we read, Blessed art thou who hast given me wisdom, for to thee I give thanks. And the word translated give thanks is homo legeo. See, you can't translate that, I confess thanks. You can't translate it, I agree with thanks. See, the trap that I'm dealing with here is people come in and say, confession means you have to say the same thing about the sin that God said. You have to agree with God. But see, agree may be a legitimate meaning of confession, but it doesn't fit many contexts because it has different meanings. So, and that's a, that's a sophomoric error, is to look up, oh, second meaning in Art and Gingrich is agree. Let's put that into First 1 John 1, 1.9. You haven't really confessed your sin unless you agree with God that it's a sin and look at it the same way God looks at it. That's called an etymological fallacy. I'll talk about that in a minute. 2 Maccabees 6.6 Neither was it lawful for a man to keep Sabbath days or ancient fasts or to profess himself at all to be a Jew. See, profess means to verbally admit that you're something. Okay, so that's homologo. That's another uh, nuance of homologo. If you break down New Testament usage... The primary usage is to declare or acknowledge something. Matthew seven twenty three, ten thirty two, Luke 12.8, John one twenty, uh, where John the Baptist confesses that he is not the Christ. He admits that he's not the Christ. John 9.20 is notable because in John 9.20, it's used in the same verse where we have the word agree in Greek. So let's look at that real quick. John 9.20. I'll just pop this up here on the screen in a second. So, you know, I'm always afraid I'm going to bore everybody by doing all of this. This is just the technical nitty-gritty you go through trying to figure out what a word means. Uh, this has to do with John 9 with the healing of the blind man. After he's healed, his parents say... Uh, his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, that he was born blind. Um, oh, verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already, what? What's that word? Agreed. You think it's agreed in the Greek? I mean, you think it's homo in the Greek? Some people say that's what homo means, is agreed. Well, I just put my curse over it. It's me me is a word for agreement, not homologeo. Homo, legeo. homo legeo may have that idea under certain circumstances. But you have to understand what they are. And you only do that by looking at every usage of the word and what all the characteristics are that surround it. So the Jews had already agreed that if anyone, what? Confessed him to be Christ. There's homologeo. In other words, if anyone admitted Jesus to be Christ... Now, does homo legato there means to feel sorry? They were sorry that he was Christ. That doesn't fit. They were remorseful that he was Christ. See, that, that doesn't fit. But you'll find a lot of dictionaries who will say that confess means to have remorse or, or something like that. So it, it, you have to look at each, each usage. Uh, in some contexts, it means to admit or to acknowledge something. Acts 24.14, Acts twenty three eight, Romans 10.9, If I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's uh, confession in, to openly, publicly admit or acknowledge something. First John 1 John nine is the only place in the New Testament means confess or to admit wrongdoing. Titus 1, 6, 19, it simply means to profess something or in the sense of professing it or admitting it. Uh, Matthew 14.7 and Acts 7.17, homologer, has the idea of making a promise. That's very different from confession or agreeing. In uh, Hebrews 13.15, it has the idea of praising or glorifying God. You see, that's the semantic range of the word. So now what, what an exegete has to do is to come in and say analyze each of these verses and look at what the characteristics are that surround it. And one of the things that you discover... Is that in First John one nine, when it, it it's followed by an accusative noun, if we confess sins, and it has to do with wrongdoing. Now, after we've done our analysis of how the words are used, and we develop our categories of the definitions and the various meanings, see that's what the lexicographers did. That's what Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich did. That's that's what Vines should have done. That's what Wiest should have done. That's what these other dictionary writers should do, is they go through and analyze and categorize the usage. Then you come back and you look at your dictionaries. And you have various dictionaries to look at. And if you, as I pointed out earlier, if you look at the Koine Dictionary in Bauer, uh, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, the first meaning is to commit yourself to something. So does that fit? If I commit myself to my sins? No, that doesn't quite work, does it? Uh, to share a common view or be common, have a common mind about a matter. To agree. And this really has the idea of, of people agreeing with one another over something. Or that used in grammar that a noun has to agree in case number and gender with its modifier. That's the idea of, of, of agreement. Now, the third meaning in Art and Gingrich is that it uh, means to concede that something is factual or true. I want, we have a, I'm going to go a couple of minutes over tonight, but not much. To concede that something is factual or true, to grant, admit, or confess. Under this, you have different categories. One category is generally to admit the truth of something. That's what it means, to admit that something is true. God, I sent. Ah, but that has another connotation. It's a judicial connotation. This is the B meaning here, to make a confession or confess something. But in a more technical sense, we'll go to C, it's a focus on the admission of wrongdoing. So when the object of confession is a statement about wrongdoing, it has to do with the admission or acknowledgement of having done the act of of being guilty. It can be a public acknowledgment, which is the fourth meaning, to publicly acknowledge, claim, profess, or praise. So those are your meanings. Now, the other thing that you can do is you can go back and you can look at various Greek lexicons. For example, I have on here, the, uh, <coughs> this is the Liddell Scott lexicon for classical Greek. Let me make that a little larger for you. Now, you see, what what you have in in a typical lexicon is you'll have the first meaning. And notice the first meaning in classical usage was to agree with or say the same thing as. You didn't see it stated that way in Koine. It was different. But then it lists the various writers, Herodotus and Heraclitus and others. And you can look those up. And what's really cool, I just love showing off my toys, What's really cool here is you can highlight the word and go over to the root here and you can go to this thing called Perseus Greek Word Lookup. Did that work? Or did I miss my... There we go. Now this takes me to a, a site on the uh, Tufts University website that lists in Greek and English all the classical literature. Everything. Latin, Greek, it's all there. So I want to look up this word in LSJ. That's Liddell Scott Jones. That's the mo- most current edition of the classical lexicon. And so it gives me my basic word right up here on top. I can't make this any larger. I'm stuck with the Internet. Uh, Homologeo. Now down here it gives the first meaning, agree with or say the same thing as, and then it gives a quote From Herodotus. What if my classical Greek is just a little rusty? Well, I can click on that reference, and it opens the reference up. Got to wait for the Internet here. It opens the reference up to that particular place in Herodotus, in English. And we can read Periander, who disclosed the oracle's answer to Thrasybulus, was the son of Sipsilus and sovereign of Corinth. The Corinthians say, now this is the the inhabitants of the island of Lesbos. Just want to make sure everybody's (laughs) got that right here. And the lesbians agree. Now guess what the Greek word there that's translated agree. Guess what that is? That's homo Isn't this cool? So you can just go through here and close out that window and you can go down and say, okay, down here it means has the idea of, of I confess that I am wronging thee and so you can pick up the idea there and you can just click on it and it'll go to the to Aristophanes and it gives you the quotes and here we don't have the availability of an English translation many of them you most of them you just can click on a button and it'll convert it to English so you go through if you're doing your word study correctly you go through all these usage usages of the word in classical. You trace it historically from the classical period to the Koine period, the biblical period, the post-biblical period, and on into the period of the Father. So you get a uh, what's called a diachronic look at the word as it develops through time. And then you come in uh, synchronically and you just drive a posthole down into the Bible and you look at all of those words. So we've done pretty much most of this already. We've got a couple of other dictionaries that, that uh, are available to look at. For example, uh, this is a recent dictionary that came out about ten years ago, the Exegetical Dictionary of the New Testament. Now, I don't know why that didn't work, but we're going to uh, okay fix that real quick. Exegetical Dictionary of the New Testament says some interesting things about homo Ligeo, one of which is that... In secular Greek, homologeo displays a wide range of meanings, particularly agree, approve or consent, concede, admit or acknowledge, confess or profess, accept or affirm, openly declare or maintain. See, that's a wide range of meanings. The exegete has to decide from context what's going on in the past. Not from theology, from the context and from word usage what this word means means. Now what we've seen in our study and down here, one other thing I want to point out here the verb arneomai forms a clear antonym uh, to homologeo now let me wrap this up for you if you are a non-Greek student a non-Greek knowing pastor then what you usually go to is tools like Vines Complete Expository Dictionary to New Testament. That was the first thing I bought when I started doing serious Bible study, what I thought was serious Bible study, back right after I graduated, right after I graduated from college. And I would look up a word in Vines, and you'd look at a word like homo legato here. I just want to point something out here. He starts off, most people don't know how to read a dictionary, and a pastor who doesn't know how to read a dictionary is going to create an etymological fallacy right off the bat. Now, what's that? Etymology is the study of the history of a word. Some words are comprised of compound words. Like here we have homo, legeo. Well, homo means the same as. Okay, we can all figure out what that means. Homosexual. You want to have sex with someone who's of the same sex, okay? Homo means same. Lego is the Greek word for speaking. So, etymologically, the word has something to do with speaking the same thing, or saying the same thing, as, or agreeing. But if you stop there, you've created an etymological fallacy, because often words take on a life of their own in usage that's far beyond the sum of their parts and their history. And yet, I've heard pastors, and I've heard pastors recently, pastors who ought to know better, who commit this heresy. See, and they quote Vines. Vines says, literally to speak the same thing. Homo same, lego to speak. That, see, that's right. But if you stop there, you're wrong. He's not. John is not saying you have to say the same thing God says about the sin. You have to think about it the same way. Vines goes on to make some very good points. It says, the basic meanings are, to assent to accord, to agree with. That's your core meaning. But what does it denote? In other words, what are the categories of usage? And Vine breaks it down. See, you've got to keep reading. A, it means to de- confess, declare, or admit. That's what homologeo means. It means simply to confess, declare, or admit to wrongdoing. He goes on to say, um, and he quotes there from John one twenty, Acts twenty four fourteen, Hebrews eleven thirteen. Second meaning: to confess by way of admitting oneself guilty of what one is accused of, the result of inward conviction. First John one nine. So it means to admit that you're that you did something, you're guilty of something. That not feeling guilty, that's breaking God's law. And then you have various other other usage. Now, what's interesting is in First John 2.23, we read, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. What are the opposites there? Denies, confesses. So what does confess mean? It's the opposite of denying within the writer John. So when you read First John one nine, if we confess our sins, he talk, he's talking about not denying that you committed the sin, but admitting or acknowledging that you've committed the sin. Now, just one last thing, and then we'll finish. This is from Kenneth Weist's Kenneth Weist's Word Studies in the Greek New Testament. He was a Dallas grad from the early fifties. Now I want you to see this is your this is your final exam on tonight's lesson. I want you to see if you can apply what we've learned. We looked at how the word was used. Then we looked at how it was categorized by some of the professional lexicographers. And now we're going to see what Wiest says. Now you tell me if Wiest has done his homework or not. Or if he's reading his theology into the meaning of the word. He says, The sinner is to believe with regard to Christ and sin. The saint is to confess. The word confess is homo from hamas, the same, and lego, to say. Thus, quote, to say the same thing as another. What has he just done? He's just created an etymological fallacy, hasn't he? See how smart you are? Or to agree with another. Now, here's where he makes his application. Confession of sin on the part of the saint means, therefore, to say the same thing that God does about the sin. Now is that is that right have we is that what the the evidence shows No the evidence shows just the opposite doesn't it? He goes on to say to that confession of sin on the part of the saint means therefore to say the same thing that God does about that sin to agree with God as to all the implication of that sin as it relates to the Christian who commits it and to a holy God against whom it is committed You feel the burden of legalism just guilt dumped on your back I have to agree with everything God... He's omniscient. How can I ever agree with everything God thinks about that sin? I can't. It's impossible. To say the same thing that God does about the sin, to agree with God as to all the implication of that sin as it relates to the Christian who commits it and to a holy God against whom it is committed. That includes the saint's hatred of that sin. Now, you have to hate the sin before it's legitimate confession. His sense of guilt because of it. If you weren't guilty, you can't have contrition. Uh Uh-oh, now I've got to work up a sense of guilt. His contrition because of it. The determination to put it out of his life and never to do that thing again. Now, does word usage validate this? No. Does the theology of the passage validate this? No. Do the lexicons validate this? Not at all. And yet, I have read in a missionary newsletter recently... And if you don't read your footnotes when you see this, then you'll get sucked in, quoting vines and weeds to substantiate this interpretation of 1 John 1.9. Now, that's why the believer needs to have discernment. I just taught you a lesson in how to exercise discernment and critical thinking skills. Now, if I had time, I would go over and take you to like the Bible Knowledge Commentary. 1 John 1, 9, talking about confession. Uh, Zane Hodges wrote this. He was my uh, Greek professor at Dallas Seminary. And he says uh, regarding this, he says, um, uh, If we confess our sins, He'll forgive the sins we confess, and moreover will even cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Naturally, only God knows at any moment the full extent of the person's unrighteousness. Each Christian, however, is responsible to acknowledge, note the parenthesis, the meaning of confess, homo legamen. That's what it means to acknowledge, not to repent, not to have remorse, not to feel the same way about how God feels about it in all of its implications. You can't do that. That's just dumping a load of legalism on us. See, the grace of God says it's simple. You just admit or acknowledge your sin to God and instantly you're forgiven so you can move on. But the point is, it's for the purpose of moving forward in terms of walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ, not so that you can just uh, not get out of some divine discipline for that sin and then commit another sin. Not so you can just get on that ping pong thing of going in and out of fellowship all the time. And frankly, that's what a lot of people try to deal with when they try to deal with confession is they they try to get people off of this ping pong thing and say so you have to stay in fellowship, but they almost always end up in some form of legalism to do it. Let's bow our heads and close in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this time together that we can come to understand your grace and forgiveness. That all that you ask of us is that we admit or acknowledge sin that's already paid for by Christ on the cross. And you instantly forgive us of that sin and also graciously cleanse us of all other sin. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things we study tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.